Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lead us the way of Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Lead us in the way of lament. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Lead us in the way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Lead us in, in the way of justice. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to our live stream. I'm so happy that you have chosen to join us this morning on this Thanksgiving weekend, this, this very odd Thanksgiving weekend in a very odd year of 2020. So we just want to wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving, whatever that expression looks like for your family uh, or for yourself uh, this weekend. Just happy Thanksgiving, and remember to always be kind and to always be thankful. We don't have to just be thankful on Thanksgiving. The Lord gives us uh, much to be thankful for. And so I'm just so happy that you joined us this morning. Uh, One of the things that I wanted to mention before we get into preaching is uh, the Infinitum Challenge that we launched uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I've been hearing from some who are participating in that and feeling extremely blessed and thankful for uh, what God's been doing in their lives. And it's not too late for you folks to, uh, to, to, to log on to that, to begin that process. It's really just simply a posture prayer that's asking you for two minutes of your time in the morning and a few minutes of your time in the evening to reflect on whether you lived that posture or not. And so that's something that we value a lot Uh, is to be formed spiritually from the inside out. It's the internal that creates the external. And so practicing these types of prayers and these types of practices in our lives are absolutely essential. So if you have not begun that, you can just go to our website, evergreenheights.org, and uh, you can find out all the details of what I mean by the infinitum prayer challenge. So this week, we're in our fifth week of the Jesus Way series. We've been working through this concept of what is the Jesus Way? What is it that, what's the way that we are supposed to live as followers of Jesus Christ? And we believe that Jesus shows us the Father so that, that um, we can fully see who God is through Jesus in the flesh. And so that means that his way matters to our way of living. Now, the Beatitudes specifically is what we've been using to walk through these nine different blessings that Jesus uses to, to essentially kick off his most famous series uh, of teachings in all of the New Testament. And so these nine blessings show us a different way of life. They're very countercultural, very upside down to uh, the way that, uh, that many people, even in the religious world, uh, would have blessed another. I'm just going to pull up uh, something here. 
uh, to read to you. This is a, a Jewish rabbi named Ben Sirah who lived uh, a little bit before Jesus, who was a fa- very famous Jewish rabbi. And I want you to listen to the blessings that he did. You see, this, this uh, blessed uh, thing is, is a very common thing in Jewish culture. They would begin their teachings often by giving a blessing. And this is what the Jewish rabbi, very famous scholar in 150 BC, he said, blessed is the man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is the man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue. Blessed is the one who doesn't serve an inferior. That's interesting. Blessed is the one who finds a friend. Blessed is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. Greatest is the one who finds wisdom and none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Now let's compare what that Jewish rabbi does, which shows you a glimpse into the culture of the time, what he blesses compared to what Jesus blesses. Jesus says in chapter five, verse three of Matthew's gospel, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. That's this week's passage. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. And he says, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted In the same way, do you see the difference between these two blessings? He's saying, the Jewish rabbi is saying, blessed the man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. And yet Jesus is saying the opposite. Jesus proclaims in these blessings that God's kingdom is here for those that society would never actually expect. He he turns things upside down and blesses those who who place their trust in him. He says, those who mourn, those who are humble. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is for you. We want to get my timer back on here just to make sure. (laughs) There we go. Now, the Beatitudes, essentially, folks, are, are not a list of how to live. They're not a list of how to live because we could actually make that self-righteousness. We don't try to seek opportunities to mourn. I've never met anybody that is like, man, I really hope I get to mourn today. I've never met anybody that's like, boy, I hope I get persecuted today. These aren't necessarily things that, a list of things that Jesus is calling us to live. The Beatitudes are actually showing us a mindset, a new way of thinking about others and how this new way of thinking opens the door to God's kingdom for us. 
It's actually a return to seeing the world how God created us. So this week's passage, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice for they will be satisfied is actually really the key to the heart of understanding these beatitudes. It's really the the thrust of of Jesus's whole motive behind these blesseds is this one passage in verse six. You see, because Jesus came to restore justice in our world. And, and, And the kingdom of God is for those who hunger and thirst for justice. That's what he's saying here. It's important to remember though, if you do good Bible reading, you'll understand what I'm saying, that chapter five is after chapter four. And so we actually have to go back in chapter four and take a look at what Jesus was leading into, what, what Matthew specifically is, is leading us into through his gospel. So in, in chapter four, Jesus makes a statement that actually helps us put the Beatitudes into context. In chapter four, verse 17, it says, from then on, Jesus began to preach. So he's beginning his ministry. This is early on in the gospel. And Jesus says this, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is for those who hunger and thirst for justice. And Jesus is calling us to repent of our sins and turn to God. You have to see that that's literally a vision statement of Jesus' ministry right here. That is what he came to do, to call us to repent of our sins and to turn to God. Now, you don't need to be a scholar to understand that this means we have something we need to repent of. It's our sins. And that when we repent of our sins, it means a turning toward God. In other words, we're sitting with our back to God most of the time, and Jesus is saying through repentance, you can turn and face him face to face. This is important to understand what he means. He calls all humans to repent of our sins and to turn to God. This is because the kingdom of God is now near or has come, depending on your translation. Now, This context helps us to understand Jesus' call for justice or with some translations, righteousness. We're gonna get into that nuance later on in the message. You see, essentially it's because we're not living righteous lives and so Jesus is calling us back to righteousness. This is important. Now, first though, and I'm gonna kinda, you're gonna have to bear with me through this sermon because we're gonna be teaching quite a bit and be kind of jumping from one thing to another. But first of all, we have to understand what Jesus means by righteousness or by justice. And we have to understand why our English Bibles use both words differently uh, when in the original languages they maybe don't. So we're gonna get into that. But how we do that is we've gotta actually understand Genesis chapter one first. And so I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter one. In order to grasp the concept of justice, the way the Bible talks about justice, we have to go back to the Genesis story where God sets the stage for all of humanity. So Genesis chapter one, verse 27, he says, so God created human beings 
in his own image. The, the word that the New Living Translation that I'm using today uh, translates as human beings, that's a really good translation. The Hebrew word there is actually Adam. That's where we get Adam from. But the Hebrew word Adam actually has no gender attached to it whatsoever. And they didn't have a word in the Hebrew language for human beings. And so they used the word Adam to describe humanity, the creation of humanity. It's a very poor reading of scripture if you interpret that word as man. That is not how a Hebrew would have interpreted it at all. So it says, so God created all of humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. That them word is very important. Male and female, he created them. Then here's what we were to do after we were created, living in the garden. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurried around. Human beings were created in the image of God. Folks, this is, this is like the bedrock passage to understand justice the way that God defines it. All human beings were created equal and have the right to be treated with dignity, to be treated as image bearers of God. So when you look around at all of humanity around you, no matter what your opinion is of another person, the Bible says that that person is an image bearer of God, that they were created equally. Adam created human beings equally in the eyes of God, both male and female. He created them. This is the way that God meant for things to be. That's what the garden is showing us, the way original creation was meant to be. Humanity living in perfect harmony with God, male and female as equals. But this all changes in chapter three, when humanity learns the difference between good and evil. You see, the, the narrative shows us that when sin is introduced in Genesis 3, it's the first time in history that humanity felt shame. It's the first time in history that equality is gone out the window. And it's shame-based. You see, ever since this time in chapter 3, when, when sin was introduced into the world, human beings have re been redefining good and evil at the expense of other human beings and at the expense of our relationship with our creator. The Old Testament is absolutely saturated with these stories. Like if you don't believe me, just read the Bible for 15 minutes, open it to any page in the Old Testament and you'll see that it's saturated with these kinds of oppressive stories. The first being Cain and Abel and the first murder. Ever since sin came into the world, living righteous became something that was corrupt for power. Power, status, and oppression become the focus of humanity after the fall. So, so let me first, we're gonna have to jump somewhere here. Let me first define oppression for you from a biblical standpoint. We've had some folks ask this question. So this is from a biblical standpoint, what oppression uh, means. Oppression 
is the use of power and structures of power at the expense of others. Oppression is the use of power and structures of power at the expense of others. Usually, one oppresses another to protect their power, their comfort, their security, and their privilege at the expense of those with less than you. It's subtle. It's subtle and it's actually really scary. The Old Testament story of Egypt and Israel and the Exodus show us a perfect example of one nation oppressing another nation in order for that nation to maintain their structures of power and privilege. You know the story. Where, where the Pharaoh at the time, the leaders at the time go, oh, these Israelites, they're really growing and they might be able to overtake us. And so what we need to do to stop them from possibly overtake, they're making up a situation. Like they don't even know whether Israel's actually going to overtake them or not or whether that's the intention at all. But they, they see it, they, they read into it and they go, we need to oppress this group of people in order to maintain our power and our authority here in Egypt. And so we get the Israelites shifted into a life of slavery and oppression. We also see this saturated in our culture. All of this, the whole Israelite story, everything that, that, that scripture's talking about, even the Cain and Abel story, the first murder, we see all of this saturated in our culture still today where structures have been put into place to protect some at others' expense. It's super subtle, like I said, and often we don't even notice that we are actually oppressing someone. We are actually the oppressor We're oppressing someone in order to protect our own power, our own comfort, our own security, and our own privilege. It's often just called an opinion. Often our opinions in themselves, when stated out loud, are oppressive in nature. Let's look at uh, what God's response to oppression actually is. I'm just picking out a few in Psalms. Psalm 146, verses seven to nine. He says, he gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. If we jump over to Proverbs, verse chapter 31, Verse eight, this is is a proverb, a wisdom, words of wisdom that's given to us. And listen to what this proverb says. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Endure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Jeremiah prophet. In chapter 22, he says this to Judah's kings. This is what the Lord says, verse three, be fair-minded and just. Do what is right. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppression. Quit your evil deeds. Do not mistreat foreigners, orphans, and widows. Stop murdering the innocent. You see, folks, 
God hates oppression and seeks to restore and bring justice to those who are suffering from oppression. In the New Testament, we also continue to see oppression happening. The Romans over the Jews, that inserts us into the time of Jesus where the Messiah comes in a time where the Jews are being oppressed by Roman structure. Roman structure, by the way, is completely oriented in honor and shame. Honor and shame drive their entire structure, their entire way of living. And the Jews, even though they're being oppressed by the Romans, actually develop their own oppression within their own religious structure. So either Roman policy that, that is oppressive or religious structures that separate society into classes, the scriptures are saturated with these stories, the poor, the sick, the rich, and the religiously righteous, and how that none of them can ever seem to get along. Oppressive structure and humanity seeking power through structures of honor and shame rather than righteousness and justice have been the root of sin since the third chapter of Genesis. And Jesus came to restore justice. It's obvious if you read the New Testament that Jesus came to restore justice. We, we make the coming of the Messiah all about salvation. The early New Testament uh, believers, the early church, they would actually probably argue with most of the way evangelicalism frames the gospel. An early Christian never would have framed the gospel around you get to go to heaven. That wasn't even actually a discussion for the first 300 years of the early church. We've shifted the, 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 our doctrine into this salvific-based doctrine that is about salvation, about what we receive in the future, but the early New Testament actually would have been more about how do we go about living our lives in Christ right now. And it's a drastic mistake that we've made because we're thinking of future all the time and then oppressive, building oppressive structures even within the church now. Uh, just to, to throw out a few passages, if you look at Luke chapter four, listen to what Jesus says in this. He's just been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth and he says, he's reading the scripture in the synagogue. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He who has anointed me to bring, now you ready? Jesus is gonna tell you what he, what God, what the father has anointed him to do, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's why Jesus came. Notice nothing about your salvation and you going to heaven. You see, salvation is more than just going to heaven. In Luke chapter seven, listen to what Jesus says here. John the Baptist is a little bit unsure of whether Jesus is really the one that they've been waiting for. And so he sends some of his followers to go and talk to Jesus to find out like, are you really the one? Are you really the way? And listen to what Jesus says. He says, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. 
This is Jesus's evidence of what he came to do. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured and the deaf hear, the dead are raised of life and the good news is being preached to the poor. Folks, do you see it? He's flipping society upside down and saying every structure that you have that focuses on you, on the privilege, I came for the poor. I came for the ones that your society shoves to the margins instead of the rich who think they have it all figured out, who are the ones that are running society. You see, the church is called to be part of What the scriptures would say is restorative justice that Jesus began in his ministry here on earth. And this becomes obvious when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Yet the church struggles in itself with this call. That's why we go back to Genesis again. We have original creation made in the image of God. That's how we're to see all people. And then we have corruption come into the world because we now know good from evil. And so the church struggles with this call. We actually argue and debate around what we think Jesus meant by righteousness and justice. Google it sometimes. We argue like crazy in the Christian church over these two words. We've implemented structures in the church that are oppressive and power-based. One of the reasons for this is that we struggle with sin, even in the church. And the other reason, and this is the reason that makes me the most curious and the reason that I wanna try and tackle for you this morning is that we actually read the Bible very poorly. We interact with scripture very elementary, very poorly. We pluck passages out and we say, thus the Bible says, and and we're, we're not using the passages the way that they're actually written. We're removing context and we're just saying, but the Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. And we learn actually in Sunday school to just quote scripture passages off the cuff as proof that the Bible says something. Well, the Bible says an awful lot of something, but it's often not the something that we're presenting because we're to present the good news. So if anything that you say to someone is not good news, it's probably not in the Bible. What is the good news that we are to present. You see, we read the Bible very poorly and we often use it as a weapon of oppression instead of a narrative of restoration and peace. So this morning, I wanna help you to read your Bible better. We're gonna spend the last five minutes or so learning actually how to read the Bible better. And it means that words matter. Your Bible is full of words on a page. Those words are communicating to you. Yes, we have the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our life that helps you to interpret the Bible. I get all of that. But the words mean something. That's why we get in arguments about literal translations versus non-literal translations. So we're gonna get into two words in scripture, justice and righteousness. And how should that look in the church today? So, we got two main languages that scripture uses, Hebrew and Greek. Those are our original texts. There's a little bit of Aramaic sprinkled in there, but generally the Bible was written in Hebrew or in Greek. And so the word righteousness 
in Hebrew, tzedakah is the word for righteousness. It means right relationships. So right away, people are like, yeah, that's right. That's what righteousness means. It means doing what's right. It means right relationships. Right relationships specifically between each other. So the word righteousness, tzedakah, in the Hebrew scriptures means right relationships between one another. It's about how we interact with each other. It literally means that we are to treat others rightly with respect, love, and equality. So righteousness in the Old Testament was all about others and how God calls us to respect relationships that are not about power and to see others as equal. He didn't give up on Genesis chapter one and say, well, that didn't work. Genesis chapter one, folks, is actually our guiding post of the kingdom of God. He's calling us back to that way of living. And actually, if you read the New Testament to its completion, you'll you'll know that the new Jerusalem, the return essentially of the garden into a city is the way that it all ends. Now, the Jews had a tradition that was established by God that was designed to essentially even the playing field, so to speak, to bring righteousness to the people. And it was called the year of Jubilee. Now, no one at all in North America would be willing to celebrate the year of Jubilee. We, we sing about it, but we would never implement it. Do you wanna know why? It, the year of Jubilee was, was every seven years in the Jewish calendar. And it was a law. By law, all the Jews would practice this thing called the year of Jubilee. It was a year that was dedicated to rest. Not a day, not a couple hours. Every seven years, the Jews dedicated a year to rest. Listen to, listen to this. To restoration of property, it means they didn't plant any crops. Imagine farmers having to take a year off from all yielding crops in your fields. And it was a year to free people from their debts. You bankers would love that. Seven years was the cycle of a debt. After seven years, the debt was completely forgiven by law. And servitude and slavery. So if you owned slaves who were essentially your workers... Every seven years, your slaves would be set free. You see, this year of Jubilee, this dedicated year, was essentially about the Jews learning to acknowledge that God would provide for their needs, that it wasn't actually about their systems and their structures, that it was actually about the sovereign God who they were living their life for. So think about it. Forgiving anyone who owes you money of their debt Planting, planting no crops for a year, letting your labor, laborers go free. All slaves working would be completely set free. It was like a year of evening out everything. A year of admitting that you spent the past six years building your wealth and your power, and now it was time to give it all up. This is a structure that God put into the Jewish system and it would restore relationships that were broken because someone owed them something and now they're forgiven of their debt. Think of how radical that is. 
Now the Hebrew word for justice, so in the Hebrew word, they have uh, the word for righteousness and then they have a word for justice and it's called mishpat. Really cool word, mishpat. I just think it's a cool word, it makes me giggle. Now mishpat can refer to legal justice, it does about three times maybe in the Old Testament, it actually refers to legal justice. But most of the time, all the other times, and it's, it's represented over 200 times in the Old Testament, it's about restorative justice. Anyone who is being oppressed in the year of Jubilee would be restored to justice, forgiven, and set free. The scriptures most often speak about this kind of justice, the kind that lifts up those who are oppressed and humbles the oppressors. Now, the New Testament, we got to get moving. You ever notice when we're live, I get a little bit more long-winded? <laughs> the New Testament does something that I find absolutely fascinating with its language. It does something absolutely fascinating. There's only one word that's used in the original Greek language to describe both righteousness and justice. It's interesting because in our Bibles, we see the word righteousness, we see the word justice. Even in the Beatitude passage, the New Living Translation uses justice. The NIV uses righteousness. So which one is it, right? The Greek is doing something very fascinating here. It uses a word, dikaiosune. Dikaiosune is the only word that they have in the Greek language that expresses righteousness and justice. They make two words into one. Each time you see the word in the scriptures translated as righteousness or justice, they've, that, that is the single Greek word, dikaiosune. Our English translations have to make an English translation decision based on our language and our culture. You see, we struggle defining righteousness and justice and we often see justice as getting what you deserve and we see righteousness as right behavior, ethics. Dikaiosune means none of those and all of those. You see, we struggle to see doing what is right and justice as one and the same thing. But in the Greek language, doing what is right is righteousness and justice. So we get this all messed up all the time in, in our English language. So we say that God is just, meaning that God will give you what you deserve. We serve a just God. He'll give you what you deserve. Thank goodness, because you know if you hate a lot of people, you're like, yeah, God's gonna get them anyway, right? Because he's a just God. Instead, like we separate these two words because our languages struggle. Righteousness is not ethic alone and justice is not a legality alone. It's both. It's showing us in the New Testament that doing what is right and restoring someone who is oppressed are actually the same thing. If you're doing what is right, you will be restoring someone who is oppressed. It's linked to how we function in community. See, this is our problem. The New Testament uses communal language. Our culture in the West is all about individualism. 
And individualism actually stops us from understanding passages like this because he's using communal language. Do what is right within your community. Not do what is right for you. They built a community in Acts chapter 2. You've heard me read this a lot and I got to get moving. This is what happened after Pentecost. This is your early church. This was their reaction to God moving in their lives, to the Holy Spirit coming. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to sharing and meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. They were devoted. They didn't have to put out an infinitum challenge to beg you to pray. They were devoted to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. Oh my goodness, they're experiencing God and a deep sense of awe. If you lack a deep sense of awe, you probably lack the awe of God. A deep sense of awe went over them all and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders and all the believers met together in one place and listen what happened. They shared. Equality begins to happen again. Justice happens again. They shared everything they had. They sold their properties and possessions and they shared the money. We can't even get like married Christian couples to merge their bank accounts, let alone get everybody in our community to share their money with those who are in need. It says they worship together in the temple each day. Like we're begging you to just come to church once a month, once a week. They, they were there every day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And guess what happened? Each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You see, folks, eventually the church, this was the early church, and this is actually historically, we have historical evidence of that it looked like that for about 300 years. Not just like for a couple of weeks. And then sin came in and it was all messed up and, and the church just went to be a big dumpster fire like it is today. Instead, they, they, this is the way they lived for 300 years, even amongst persecution. Like they had ways of going to church where by, by going to someone else's home to meet for church, they risked their lives in death. And they didn't, they didn't have like a church organizing it for them or anything like that. They just went because they were in awe. Now, eventually, the church becomes corrupted by sin. Actually, historically, it's in the age of Constantine where the Roman emperor claimed to become a Christian. I don't know if he did or didn't. I do know that his life did not show that he did. But he claimed, and he, he merged religion, the Christianity to be the official religion of the state. And uh, it just went haywire from there. People began to seek power and status in the church instead of humility and freeing the oppressed. But it took hundreds of years. It took hundreds of years for this to happen. And this gives me hope that through Jesus, we can live a life here on earth filled with justice and righteousness. We don't have to wait to, for the new Jerusalem to return for that to happen. You see, the beatitude that Jesus states gives us hope here as well. He says, those who hunger and thirst for justice will be satisfied. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but 
the word hunger and the word thirst. You ever been hungry? You ever been thirsty? Is that like a comfortable thing? Like, oh, I'm, I'm really hungry. I'm so comfy, right? Like I, I'm, I'm famished. I, I'm, I'm so thirsty. This feels great. So when he says hunger and thirst for justice, for righteousness, and you will be satisfied. He's actually saying there's gonna be some hard work put into this. It might actually be painful at times, but you should hunger and thirst for it. You should be willing to sacrifice for it. And so I think that Jesus is telling us that living a life of justice, it'll be uncomfortable at times because it's not our natural disposition. But if we can learn to recognize oppression, that's actually the problem is we can't even see it. I've been studying a lot about a lot of the things that are happening in our world today. And like, I've been repenting going, my goodness, I didn't even know. I had no idea that those were the structures in place. And that's what got a certain people group to where they are today. In Canada, we, we actually have to study it now in our schools with indigenous people. Did you know that the Mennonites ran one of the residential schools in Winnipeg? The Mennonites, our denomination, actually ran on behalf of the government one of the residential schools. Anyway, I'm not gonna get into all that because we're 40 minutes in. Here's the greater hope. Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they can be declared righteous. <laughs> Jesus offers his life to the guilty. Folks, I'm the guilty. I'm guilty of being an oppressor. I'm guilty of not seeking justice for those who are oppressed. And Jesus offers his life for someone like me so that I can be declared righteous. Now, it doesn't let me off the hook. He says to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. It's a posture that we take as the Christian church today. And I really believe that Jesus modeled this for us, a new way of living, a new way of seeing the world through his lens. He calls us to lift up the oppressed and experience the satisfaction that that brings, bringing equality into a broken world. Genesis. Chapter one, made in the image of God, that we see all people through that lens, that all people that you interact, even that idiot in the lineup of Tim Hortons that's holding things up, that person is made in the image of God. And the beauty of this is that the Bible also tells me that Jesus one day will eliminate shame and restore us back to righteousness. But in the meantime, he's called his church to be witnesses to our broken world, to literally be Jesus to the world. And the Jesus way is a way of trust, a way of lament, a way of justice. The Jesus way sees humanity as all people made in his image. So we're called, we're called by Jesus to repent of our sins and to turn to God and to live a life of justice. Righteousness and justice are about living a radical, selfless life, seeking to restore the oppressed and bring image of God equality back to all relationships. This is why it's so important to love our neighbor 
as ourselves. This is the call of the church today. I'm going to turn things over to Pastor Tamil as she leads you through a reflection. And then after that, we are going to go into communion live together. It's easy to look at the brokenness in our world and to feel overwhelmed by it, to feel like we're too small and too insignificant to even make a dent in all of the pain and injustice around us. And so often we do one of two things. Either we ignore it and we try to pretend like it doesn't exist, or we look for someone to blame and we come up with reasons why it's not our problem. But Jesus shows us how to live differently. He shows us how to live in the way of justice. In Luke 4, Jesus launched into his public ministry by announcing that he was here to bring good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. And throughout his entire life, we see Jesus showing love and dignity to people who were outcast in his society and knocking down the walls that kept them in the margins. And as his followers, Jesus calls us to be people who see the image of God in every human being, who treat others with dignity, and who work towards justice in our communities. Here's the reality. We might not have what it takes to fix all of the problems that exist in our broken world, but we can change the world, and we are changing the world in small ways, for better or for worse, each and every day by the decisions that we make and by the ways that we treat other people. So as we wrap up this morning, take a moment to reflect on this question. Where are you hungry and thirsty for justice in our world? Where are you longing to see God's kingdom come? Take a moment to hold that situation or that issue before God in prayer. And now how might God be inviting you to work towards justice? It doesn't have to be something big. Maybe it's just a matter of changing the way that you see somebody or committing to praying for people who are living in oppression. But in what practical way is God inviting you to embrace the way of justice today? God, we thank you that you invite us to participate in the work of your kingdom in our broken world. Help us to represent your light and to walk in the way of justice. Amen. We're going to transition into communion this morning. And it really couldn't be more fitting that on a day like today, when we've been focusing on justice, that we also share in communion together because each one of us comes to the communion table with empty hands. At the table, all of the labels that we give ourselves and all of the labels that we give each other just fall away, they lose their relevance. And at the table, all of the things that divide us, that stand between us, lose their power. We stand side by side with hands open to receive the body of Christ that was broken for the rich and the poor for the powerful and the oppressed, for people from all backgrounds journeying through all different seasons of life. 
at the table, table were reoriented to this life-changing reality that we are one, that through Jesus' death and resurrection that we have been united with Christ and united with one another. I'm gonna go ahead and state the obvious. Doing communion just isn't the same when we can't do it together in person. And maybe that's something that you're feeling the weight of right now in this moment. And yet in this season when we can't gather together, we need this, re- we need this reminder of our unity more than ever. And so whether you're alone this morning or with family or outside with your home church, know that you are participating in communion this morning together with our bigger church family. Let's join together in preparing our hearts for communion by following along with this reading. You can read along with me as the words come up on the screen. The Lord is here. His spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. Great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let's open our hearts and our hands to receive the gifts of God poured out for the people of God through communion. The Apostle Paul, when he was given correction actually to how they went about doing communion in the Corinthian church, he says this, for I passed on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord took some bread and he gave thanks. That's what we're doing this weekend, but we should be doing it all the time. He gave thanks to God for it. And then he, he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for your body broken for us. And we thank you, Lord, that the communion table restores us similar to Jubilee back to to image bearers, to viewing one another as image bearers of you. And so Lord, through your broken body, this became possible, that righteousness and justice could be lived each day. And so we thank you for this body. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you take this with me? same way he took the cup of wine after supper saying this cup is the new covenant they were under the old covenant this is the ushering in of the new covenant and this cup represents that a new covenant between God and his people an agreement that was confirmed by his blood he says when you take this cup you do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, we thank you for the blood that was shed on the cross that again brought the possibilities of equality to our world. That when we come to the table, we are all one in Christ through the shedding of your body and your blood. So thank you, Jesus, as we remember what you did on the cross of Calvary.
Amen. Will you drink the cup with me?